This is the Wakar Podcast, covering the latest automotive electrification news, recorded Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021. Episode 4, Putting Your Eggs in the Self-Driving Basket. Here we are, episode four. Number four, rounding the corner. Shock and surprise. I tell you, I don't have all of our tracking information set up on the podcast, but we are getting more traffic to the website. I know that for sure. And I'm working on seeing whether or not we have any listeners. I bet we have one or two. Probably in uh, Slovakia and... Um, We're big in Romania. For Istanbul too, supposedly. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Well, hello. Uh, in case you don't know me, I'm Phil Royal, a writer for The What Car, and also Sports Car Magazine's editor and an editor for Racer.com. Who are you? Uh, Ed Sanchez. Uh, my day job is uh, senior analyst at Strategy Analytics Global Automotive Practice. So we cover the supply side electronics uh, space of the automotive market. And here on The What Car Podcast, we cover what our website covers, which is electrification news. We've got hybrid news, we've got plug-in news, we've got EV news. Periodically a fuel cell pops in there when Eddie doesn't nix that from the rundown. <laughs> but what we have today is kind of a continuation of news from last week, which I was excited to see. The Ionic 5, when it was announced, the strange part about it was its size. We already yep. knew a whole bunch about the EGMP platform and its ability to charge rapidly on an 800 volt architecture. And we knew a lot of this stuff. What we didn't know anything about was how weirdly proportioned this thing was going to be. And well, in, in real life, uh, visually, it looks totally proportionate. Yeah. But I guess in real life, it's like, wow, this thing's pretty big. It looks like it should be a Volkswagen Rabbit. And then it's got the wheelbase of a Hyundai Palisade. It's not a super small car. No. And so we've been seeing them around. I think we've seen a video in South Korea, and we've seen now a video in uh, Germany of these cars being charged, which is fun other than the one in South Korea. I was so annoyed by the guy videotaping the thing because it was sitting next to another car, and he was so busy showing us the solar panel roof that he kind of cut out the fact that there was a car sitting next to it that we could use for scale. There's nothing for scale on this. And it looked like there was maybe a Veloster next to it. It was hard to tell, but this certainly was bigger. The roof line was, was significantly larger. So I'm excited to see how that works out. I'm, I'm somewhat of a Hyundai fan. And so I'm excited to see what these cars actually look like. And as long as they don't look goofy and too wrongly proportioned <laughs> then i'm all in what i'm curious about it specifically is how the u.s market is going to react to it because i think the european and asian markets will probably be pretty favorable to it because they seem to like five-door hatchbacks for the most part the u.s market uh, traditionally has not been a big fan of compact hatchbacks even though as you point out in reality this isn't exactly a compact hatchback but it looks like one. My question is, are people going to say, 
hey, this is cool. I like the versatility. I like the features. Or are they going to be, wow, this looks like a giant hatchback. Ew. And, and like, you know, completely abandoned. I mean, who knows? It could go either way. But It's either going to be the best of both worlds or the worst. Yeah. So another car that's got an interesting style to it is the revamped Model S and Model X Teslas. And we've actually seen some Model S's around in more spy photos. And several have not had a yoke steering wheel. They've had actual round steering wheels. Shock and horror. But we're now seeing some that have the yoke. Yeah. So in at the very least, in pre-production testing models, one I think was listed as on one of the websites that they could they could not determine whether it was a pre-production or not but there are actually cars running around in the wild with the yoke steering wheel so take that and it's a so it's going to be interesting because as you know i think you've mentioned it before tesla effectively shut down their media relations division they didn't effectively do that they, they, they did. They did it. They don't so. even allow, they don't even have a photo section on their website for media to access. I guess you just got to pull them off Twitter now, huh? Yeah. Why not? Elon, I'll just tweet Elon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I guess this is a real thing, evidently. Uh, specifics are still kind of vague. I did a post last week kind of explaining how this um, adaptive steering mechanism Ford did about five years ago could really solve some of the technical issues around the yoke wheel so nobody knows if the new model s and x have this or not or how this really operates in the real world i'm going to be curious to kind of follow to see if there's any like real world reviews of the yoke wheel and how it functions and how it works you know it could be uh the next best things in sliced bread but you know i think they'll just have to wait and see they're putting a lot of their eggs in the self-driving basket, as is the case with the Prindle, the park reverse neutral drive low, yeah. if that's even still a thing, uh, that that's no longer really driver selectable. I think they're just going to rely on a lot of autonomy to solve problems. I think that's their long game, but the, the way they're getting there is kind of interesting sometimes. And this is probably a step toward that ultimate goal, but... Yeah, we'll, we'll see how it's received. I, I think it's kind of an odd design choice, but... You know who else has goals? Fisker. Ah, uh, Fisker. So they have goals of producing cars, always have, and it's never always worked out to the best. Uh, Henrik Fisker has not got the best track record, but he's come out with, and you know the name is eluding me, the, the Ocean SUV, was that what it was that he previewed? And he was working on solid state batteries. And I believe he's now public uh, with a, was that with a SPAC as well? He's trying all he can. Well, mix in some other news with Foxconn, Apple's savior when it comes to uh, the iPhone. iPhone production. Foxconn decided that it wants to get into EV cars. And Fisker said, hey, that sounds good. We'll be the Apple of EVs, so sign us up. So Foxconn is now supposedly going to produce cars for Fisker as well as uh, Geely and Byton, the Chinese automakers. And we'll see how that goes. I, huh. I don't know. Producing The one thing that I've learned from Elon Musk is that producing cars is hard. But... Yeah. 
Foxconn has some experience, you could say, in production, maybe not physically large scale like a car, yeah. but they still know the ins and outs of production. Yeah, we'll we'll see how this goes. I again, you know, I, I don't want to sandbag uh, Fisker too much, but it, they're kind of like the cat that has nine lives, and I think they're probably on about life number seven. He's determined. Yeah, <laughs> he is very determined. You know, last week uh, there was talk of uh, the the USPS being determined to update their cars, their delivery vans, and we talked a little bit about that. And at the time, there were a lot of there was a lot of chatter on blogs saying that the USPS had missed the ball. Basically, they'd signed up with Oshkosh uh, Defense to produce a bunch of mail delivery vans. Basically, replaced the delivery vans that are 25 years old, I believe, is the newest one. And there's many things that work into this story. It's so complicated. There's uh, President Joe Biden saying that they're going to replace 600,000 plus uh, government vehicles with EVs. Then Oshkosh gets this contract and they say that not all of them are going to be EVs. And we say on, on our show, we kind of agreed with that assessment that maybe it's not, it's not. Yeah, it doesn't make yet. sense to uh, go 100% electric on those right away. But then the postmaster general says, we're only going to have 10% of these new mail trucks will be EV. And I think that's ridiculous. Well, okay. So uh, unpacking this a little bit more, what's interesting is the current postmaster general was appointed under the Trump administration. So <gasps> I think uh, we kind of know uh, how that administration generally felt about EVs, which is a collective meh. To, assuming to put it, to put it lightly assuming um, he was tied in with that i don't know anything about him i, I, I have not I, I don't know so what, what's he interesting had a solid is then, point well so what's interesting about this is um uh, our friends at clean technica who's generally that that's a very very pro ev blog generally one of their riders actually agreed with us saying maybe not all of them should be evs because in rural areas where, you know, the, the delivery points are few and far between and the total route and sometimes in some cases can be over 200 miles. Um, you, you'd kind of be pushing the limits of what an EV mail trick could practically cover. So they're saying, yeah, make, make some of them gas for now, but for only rural routes, but so. only 10% be an EV. What do you take of that? I mean, okay, so the Postmaster General's pitch in congressional testimony was like, hey, if the administration or the DOE or, you know, whoever gives us three or four billion dollars, will electrify a lot more of them. But he said, from a budgetary standpoint, as it currently stands, they can only afford to electrify about 10% of them. On its face, I think that's, if that's true, and he needs more money, then that's solid. That makes a valid point. Um I think it could probably be more like 70, 30 or 60, 40. You know, I, I think that the, the kind of the edge case in which, you know, an EV would not make sense. I don't know how many of the routes are 200 miles. My guess is not a ton of them, but there are a few. I, I think it could be more than 10%, but we'll see. Well, what's interesting too is um, the, the loser in the, uh, the contract bid to build this workhorse, I guess, uh, 
you know, again, I, I don't want to be too hard on, but it sounds like a little bit of sour grapes on their part. So they're, they're saying, Hey, w- way to cut and pick a minute. You know, it does, I'm not sure if they want to try and, you know, claw back part of this contract or something, but they're, they're trying to get their day in court. It sounds like. This is not something new for companies. Uh, most recently, there was a big defense contract that Amazon went and disputed the contract, saying that basically President, uh, then <clears throat> President Trump didn't like Amazon. And so he gave it to Microsoft. So it's not abnormal, it seems, uh, to dispute a contract. What I kind of wonder is, is workhorse in dire need of uh, money and they've had to spin out uh, Lordstown Motors. Yeah, uh, they're not flying high with money over the last few years, yeah, as far as I, I'm I aware. I think a lot of a lot of their business plans kind of hinged on getting the the postal truck contract. So I, I think behind closed doors, they're probably kind of scrambling a little bit. So yeah, we'll see how this all plays out. I'm going to be very interested. There's a lot of these startups we discussed. A little bit before how not everybody's going to make it and this might be a case of maybe workhorse is doing what's normal for you lose a giant government contract and you you put in a request to reevaluate or maybe it's a last gasp before something else happens yeah we'll see we'll see and one of those companies that's getting into evs a little bit more right now that probably will make it is volvo and they unveiled their 2022 C40 recharge, which is a little fastback-ish coupe-esque SUV that are going to be all the rage. You did the write-up on the what car, but it, in a nutshell, it's 78 kilowatt hour battery, 261 mile WLTP range, which is going to equate to probably what the XC40 recharge has, which is about 200, 210 mile. Uh, a little over 200 probably. Yeah. It's essentially a fastback XC40 as for all intents and purposes, a crossover coupe, if you will, is all the rage, even though I don't know when exactly coupes went from two doors to four, but I guess that's uh, that's the definition now. Yeah. Hardware wise, it looks pretty much the same hardware specs as the XC40 recharge as well as the Polestar 2, which are uh, very mechanically similar in terms of the, uh, EV powertrain. Now, Volvo is, they really emphasize there will not be any ICE or hybrid variants of the C40. C40 is going to be EV only. And as part of that, they said that 100% of their lineup is going to be EV only by 2030. So if you go back a few years, back in 2017, they said, we're going to be fully electrified by 2025. And, you know, I made the, uh, kind of cynical comment that a lot of journalists uh, kind of parroted that as, oh, they're going to be fully electric by 2025. And uh, there is a subtle but important difference between electrified and electric. Electrified also encompasses hybrids, plug-in hybrids, uh, battery electrics. Fuel cells. Yeah, and fuel (laughs) cells. Um, But I guess this time Volvo says, no, 2030, and we really mean it this time. And they're actually referring to electric battery electrics yes they have they have specifically spelled out bev this time and they've also specifically spelled out that you can't walk into a dealership and go and buy one of these 
C40. Yeah. So this is going to be interesting because we've, we've done a few posts and I've, I don't know if we've really talked a lot on the podcast quite yet about it, but in the U S at least franchise dealerships have a lot of political power and influence and almost all new cars other than Tesla, of course, essentially by law have to be sold through franchise dealers. So my understanding of how this is going to work is they're still going to Volvo will still work with the dealers, but only kind of as in a service and support role. So basically if you're going to buy one, you initiate the purchase process online. I'm assuming, you know, do all the financing and all that. And then you basically just go to the dealer to pick it up. And that's when they sell you extra floor mats and underbody coating. Underbody coating and um, yeah, all that good stuff, which I recently uh, had the pleasure of dealing with myself when uh, looking for a new car for my mom, but that's a whole other uh, episode. So what I really liked about this C40 recharge is inside the car. Now it, it looks like a car. The center display is a little small. It's going to date very quickly. It's going to, it's going to show its age in a handful of years, but it's got a display in front of the driver. It's got things where they belong. And I like that. It's a car. Yeah. It's not really, I mean, other than the blanked out grill, which is similar to the XC40 recharge, it's not a blatantly weird looking car. It doesn't scream. I'm an EV. It looks nice from the outside. It looks nice on the inside. And kind of, kind of segueing off that, this whole kind of normalization of EVs seems to kind of be a thing. And that seems to be the route that VW is going with the ID4. Even though the ID4, you know, it's been announced for a while, they finally released um, the specs for the US model a couple of days ago. And um, they're, they're really kind of emphasizing how, quote, normal it is. Um, and a lot of the reviews kind of echo that saying, you know, it doesn't really stand out as really out there it's not weird looking it doesn't drive weird it's so not weird looking that it looks almost exactly like the volvo c40 recharge <laughs> yeah they, they do look a little similar i gotta admit and inside and out there it's a nice little center screen i think the the vw looks better from the inside uh, the center screen is a horizontal instead of a vertical uh, roughly the same size i didn't see any specific specs on on these things but to scale in a in the interior, they looked like they were roughly the same. There wasn't suddenly a twenty inch display in one of them, uh, yeah. but the the ID four I believe had a horizontal screen, which I I prefer the way it looks. It probably doesn't operate as well functionally for reach, but the screens are smaller. It's not like a Tesla Model yeah. S uh, revamped screen, so that might not be an issue. And it's got a little bit bigger battery and a little bit more range, two hundred fifty mile range is what they're claiming on the ID4 versus the the Volvo C40 recharge. But an added bonus with the ID4 is um, you get three years of complimentary level three charging at Electrify America. And a little known fact outside of EV nerds is Electrify America is basically part of Volkswagen settlement with the EPA for the whole Dieselgate scandal. So you're wondering, oh, why'd they partner with Electrify America? Well, they essentially kind of own them for now. Um, but uh, although I have to say Electrify America is also partnering with a lot of other OEMs outside of the Volkswagen group, but you know, it helps that they're kind of, they have a pretty familiar relationship, but I think that's a definite bonus. So I thought that was great. That goes back to the Tesla gameplay of 
give away the charging to get customers. Yeah. So I thought that was a pretty slick move. No, it's definitely a good selling point, I think. So starting price on this one is uh, 40, just over 41,000, 41,190 with delivery. Uh, gets you the two-wheel drive, I believe. And then all-wheel drive model is about 48,000. You get the $7,500 federal tax incentive on supposedly. those, supposedly, if you can get it. Now, we don't know the price to just cross shop real quick. We don't know the price on the Volvo C40 recharge, as far as I'm aware. We know that the XC40 recharge is 54,000. Do you think they're going to be able to knock anywhere from 15 to $7,000 off of this? So here's, here's my take on that. Even though size-wise, the C40 and the ID4 are very similar, I think Volvo is kind of positioned as a little bit more of a premium brand. So I don't think Volvo is necessarily going to position the C40 as kind of a, a bargain bargain model they've never moved a lot of product i don't know if they would want or could necessarily produce as much as somebody like volkswagen i, I yeah i don't i don't think they necessarily want to be you know a huge i don't know if they necessarily want to compete with you know the toyota rav4 and the honda crv i think they're content being a little more of a premium brand and you know what that usually means is slightly smaller overall volume so my guess on the C40 is, um, you know, before rebates and credits and all that, it's probably going to be in the 50s, um, if I had to guess. In fact, generally, if you look at the other kind of crossovers on the market where there's like more of a traditional SUV variant and then kind of a coupe variant, the coupe variant is usually positioned as a slightly more premium model. So if anything, I'd say maybe the C40 might be like 55, 56 possibly one of the ways they can not worry about having to sell too many cars is do what Volkswagen did with the ID buzz and announce it in 2017 and then never release it. <laughs> well, and what, what's funny is um, they showed the original Microbus concept even earlier than that. I mean, even like 10 years before that, but at the time, you know, they said, Oh, it's going to have this clean diesel and all that. That's before, you know, all the, you know, what, hit the fan <laughs> before but, electrify america exactly so um but now but yeah, we've only got to wait twist with that yeah we've only got to wait two more years uh yeah. and we're gonna see the id buzz which is basically a reimagining of the old volkswagen bus but with a whole bunch of modern stuff uh let's see here usa today uh, was one of the places that I was reading about this. The German automaker announced that it will integrate autonomous driving technology into the ID Buzz, making it a 21st century callback to an era filled with nostalgia. So I guess you can get high in the back while it drives you around. Yeah, like Spigoli, is that what they're saying? Yeah. Is that code something for something? Like the aim is to develop a ride hailing and pooling concept, Volkswagen said. In the middle of this decade, our customers will then have the opportunity to be taken to their destination in select cities with autonomous vehicles. So is this all going to be autonomous? Back in the early days of our website, you wrote a story for thewalkcar.com and it was comparing uh, this Volkswagen to the Canoe. And Canoe was going with basically no steering wheel, 
and we're a couch on wheels and Volkswagen still had a steering wheel. Now it's almost like Volkswagen is competing directly against what Canoe's project was back then. Since then, Canoe seems to have gone silent on that and they're now into delivery vans, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Um, it's going to be interesting because my impression was the original premise with the ID buzz or, you know, whatever they end up calling it was, it was going to be a consumer oriented vehicle also with, you know, a commercial kind of, um, kind of box van kind of panel van configuration as well, that they've also shown that this would very much be, um, you know, a consumer retail vehicle, you know, this isn't totally unprecedented because if you think about it, the vast majority of the Waymo vehicles are Chrysler Pacificas that have been retrofitted with, you know, a lot of the autonomous hardware and sensors and stuff. So there's really no reason they couldn't really do both with this to have like an autonomous ride hailing service, but also market it as a consumer retail vehicle. In fact, my, my feeling on this is I think this might be VW's way of kind of putting a friendlier face on autonomy as more of kind of a warm fuzzy thing rather than this, you know, rise of the machines kind of dystopian future. So this, this could be a positive for them. Uh, it could totally go off the rails too. Nobody really knows yet. I don't really know if the future that I envision is the same future that all of these other companies envision. I don't see a world with ID buzzes and canoes zipping around and nobody driving them. Uh, we went somewhere the other day in a rare COVID outing and my wife's driving the car and I'm in the passenger seat and I had to answer a couple work emails and I got car sickness in about three minutes of looking at my phone. I had to put it away and actually talk to the kids. Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine that. So I don't, I don't know what I would do in a car if I'm not driving, because apparently I can't look at my phone for more than three minutes without getting queasy. So having, having kind of been in the, an analyst for a few years now and kind of covering that whole scene, the peak, like I've said, the peak hype cycle for autonomous vehicles was like 2018 when it was this imminent revolution in two years would all be buzzing around and these autonomous pods everywhere. Obviously that didn't happen. And also now with COVID it's kind of reset a lot of expectations and, and goals for autonomy to where now I think a lot of companies, both OEMs and like technology development companies are kind of going more toward the super cruise autopilot type concept where it's primarily going to be kind of an enhanced highway cruise control sort of scenario where you manually drive your car to the on-ramp, you know, you get it onto the freeway, you hit a button, it goes into, you know, autonomous mode for your dreary commute. But once again, COVID kind of reset that with a lot more employers kind of defaulting to work from home as the kind of the standard employee scenarios. So yeah, I think, I think the whole autonomous vehicle kind of ecosystem and, and forecast is, was really throwing a curveball uh, with COVID. And another curveball was nobody can actually produce the cars, even if they wanted to with yeah. the chip shortage. And even Tesla has apparently run out of chips. Bloomberg was reporting that the, the Fremont plant was closed. I got confused on, there were two different closures that were happening. So in this report, Bloomberg was reporting that 
the Fremont plant would be closing from February 22nd to March 7th. But then there was another closure that I can't remember what it was that has since reopened. It was anyway, closures all around. Yeah, they can't they can't buy these chips. Hyundai, meanwhile, has been gobbling up chips like nobody's business for a while. And uh, they seem to be doing fine. They've got no shortage. Well, they, I think they were prescient enough to kind of see, you know, kind of see the perfect storm coming. And so they kind of stocked up, you know, they backed up the truck and like, like load them up, you know? So that's worked for them so far. I mean, ultimately if, if the situation isn't resolved, they'll probably be impacted too. But for now, uh, they're going full steam ahead. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, Ford CEO, Jim Farley, and he'd said, that he'd he was seeing a future of EVs and yada yada yada. Also, we're going to start making sure that we don't run out of chips in the future. And I believe our take on that was easier said than done. Yeah. To which Hyundai says, "Done it." Yeah. Well, a lot of it takes foresight, and um, I think COVID in almost everyone's book is what you would call a black swan event, which is totally unanticipated through a giant monkey wrench into basically the global economy and, and systems and everything. So I, I don't know if anyone could have anticipated COVID-19. No. It, and yeah. Hyundai, meanwhile, what it didn't anticipate was all of its batteries catching on fire. Yeah. Kind of, kind of awkward. Uh, supposedly yeah. the biggest EV specific recall to date. What blew me away out of this was this report, which was uh, Reuters report, said Hyundai Motor Company will replace battery systems in some 82,000 electric vehicles, mostly Kona EVs, uh, due to fire risk, costing $900 million to the company. They've sold 82,000 EVs? Yeah, when did that happen? Actually, quite a few. I think that's a global number. Not that is a global number. The yeah. American number was significantly lower, but still impressive. Yeah, not bad. So, yeah, kind of sucks. You got to cough up $900 million. And if you own one of their EVs, your house might catch on fire because their solution right now is don't park in your garage. Don't park in your garage. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah. But this also is tied to a story that we ran on the walk car this week about NHRA and they're getting into drag racing EVs, or at least considering doing it more mainstream, believe it or not, I'm going to tie this together. <laughs> and they're having some conversation at the Gator nationals, uh, discussing EVs. Now they've had EVs. They've had the e and the, the Chevy drag car and they've had and the, the Don Gartlett's car yeah. Ford with their 1500 horsepower, uh, eight second car. So they've, they've had these, but these have been exhibition. And now they're looking at, from what I could gather, actually making classes, ba basically mainstreaming EVs. The holdup is what, what they brought up as the main issue was safety, specifically mm -hmm. fire. And this isn't the first time that I've heard that concern is what do you do when these things catch on fire? I've heard stories about cars with the lithium ion batteries that catch on fire and they burn for hours, if not days. And if you don't know how to put it out, you will be in a motorsport environment. You'll be towing the car back in. You'll dump it in what we call the boneyard, where you put the crashed cars for the day. 
and it'll go back up. Yeah. So it's a major issue. This is a major issue too. And, you know, of course, if you've seen any kind of drag racing coverage, you know, whether it's amateur or professional, sometimes these guys get into pretty nasty wrecks. This is a real issue about uh, fire safety and yeah, lithium ion batteries. If, if, if there's like physical trauma to the batteries, like any kind of puncture or anything like that, it'll cause what's known as thermal runaway. So, so it'll cause kind of cause this chain reaction where, where they just kind of, they kind of go off like Chinese firecrackers. And like, like you said, it can go on for hours or days and s- some different ways to deal with this that I've heard of are either you literally take this giant tub basically, and you submerge the car in water and just let it do its thing. And that kind of, kind of eventually kind of smothers it. Or you just, you just massively douse it with like this special kind of foam, I guess. But either way, yeah, they, they got to kind of figure out, okay, what do we do when one of these EV dragsters, you know, starts catching fire and just goes and goes and goes. So yeah, some important uh, conversations and planning uh, taking place there. Maybe NHRA will talk to Hyundai at some point and <laughs> maybe they can come up with a plan together that uh, will work. Another plan that we need to work is getting all the materials to make the batteries. We need to actually mine all of the land to get the ingredients to build the batteries that go into EVs. And that's sort of put the current administration in America in, in an awkward spot. They, they don't want us to mess with, well, as, as the case generally is, Democrats say, don't drill for anything. And Republicans say, what are you don't talking about? There's, there's, <laughs> I want to drill. And that's the position that we're in once again. Yeah, this is kind of a catch-22 because there's not kind of the supply side on the back end of recycled materials where you can have a totally circular production system with batteries yet. It's still going to require mining virgin materials to scale up to, you know, even just as many EVs as Biden says he wants to buy. He's, he, at one point, he threw out the number 600,000. But if you're talking nationwide and consumer models, talking millions and millions of vehicles. In the uh, article that you'd noted for yeah. this, in the Reuters article, they said that number alone would increase the uh, mining needs of lithium, I believe, by 12%. Yeah, just just the federal purchase. Just Biden saying, I want to be more ecological and have 600,000 EVs of government cars is going to increase the requirement by 12%. Yeah. So this is this is a tricky situation because um a lot of and this is ironic because the environmentalists are opposing this yet the envi- other environmentalists were the ones that were pushing for EVs in the first place. And this also gets into the issue of um of indigenous rights um and mining on you know land owned Indian reservations in some cases. So, so it's it's yeah, a lot it's, of land that really we haven't, tricky. it's a lot of land that we haven't developed on from what i understand i know elon musk was talking about just the land between la and vegas not too long ago saying some of those areas have enough lithium i think it was lithium to, to supply evs for the world something like that but the yeah. reason that we're not doing anything is on that land there's usually a reason yeah well, mining, I mean, there's really no way around it. It's kind of a dirty, 
nasty business. But I mean, the fact of the matter is to make batteries, you got to have these minerals and these components. And right now, the only way to do it is mining. So last week we talked about uh, J.B. Strobel and his Redwood Materials Recycling Initiative. Yeah. And your contention was that eventually you can get to the point where you're recycling enough that it's nearly as good or as good as virgin material that you're pulling out of the ground. I have no answer to this particular question, and maybe uh, somebody smarter in the world does. When is that point? When is the point that we can stop mining? Are we talking never? (laughs) Are we talking 50 years? Are we talking 1,000 years? What? I, I don't even I, know. I don't think where it's going to, it may never be never. I think the goal is to reduce the need for virgin materials. So the mining for, you know, virgin nickel, uh, cobalt, lithium, whatever, over time will reduce, reduce, reduce as we're able to reclaim more recycled materials. I'm thinking this is going to be the next number that we begin to talk about. Right now, everybody's talking full EV by 2030. There are, there are companies and cities saying we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030 to 2050. I think the next number that we're going to see is decrease the mining, and they're going to put a date on that. And I think we're talking 2080, 2100, if that's a year, 2022, uh, whatever possibly. we'll call that. Neither I think it's going to be way out. Then, yeah, but. it's not our problem. <laughs> My kids can worry about that and their kids can. Yeah, um, it's it's possible we may see either a moratorium or a cap on, on mining at some point, but we're a way, ways off from that. You know, Petaluma is not ways off of banning the construction of new gas stations. No, they've done that uh, effective now, I guess. They're one of the cities saying carbon neutral by 2030. Yeah. So, um, you know, California is no stranger to uh, environmental activism, uh, both individually and, uh, you know, legislatively. And I guess uh, Petaluma is kind of taking the lead on this. Petaluma is a little town. It's about 60,000 people. It's north of San Francisco, yeah. kind of sort of in wine country area, Sonoma, Petaluma, mm-hmm. Metroplex, <laughs> if that would be the way to say it. If you want to call it that. Yes. Yeah, so I actually uh, heard the mayor speak on a, a new show this morning. Uh, to, to be perfectly honest, she didn't sound like she had a great grasp of the whole kind of scenario. She just kind of sounded like she had these vague kind of feel-good, you know, feelings about... Carbon neutral. Yeah, carbon neutral, environmental justice, all that. Mm-hmm. Be that as it may. So essentially, they're they're not yet saying they're going to start stripping out gas stations and replacing them with urban farms or whatever. Uh, They're just, they're just capping. They're basically putting a moratorium on new construction. So currently there are 16 gas stations within the Petaluma city limits. And they said, that's, that's all there's going to be. So, you know, those can stay, those can continue to service the population, but they're not going to, they're not going to approve permits for any new construction. Now the, the article on pressdemocrat.com had a statement where it said that this it doesn't just do that. It also streamlines the process for existing gas stations seeking to add electric vehicle charging stations and potential hydrogen fuel cell stations. Aha, hydrogen. Yeah. With city staff underlining the urgency to support alternative fueling, uh, zero emission infrastructure, buzzword, buzzword, blah, blah. 
So they're, they are kind of taking the next step of it's not just about getting rid of or limiting the, the number of future gas stations, but it's also about growing the infrastructure therein. What I kind of am curious about beyond this, you limit the number of gas stations that there are. You say you can't build any more. I know from other local issues that have happened both in my city and, and you hear them on the news of there's an old gas station and the ground is basically contaminated beyond use. What do you use these for? There's oil that they, they go in and they, uh, they do this remediation of the soil and it doesn't work. <laughs> basically yeah. they, they, they make sure that the, all the oil and the gas that is seeped into the dirt isn't really crudding up the ground and then the next company comes in, buys the land, starts to dig to build their foundation and discovers they're building on an oil slick and they have to go through a whole other multi-million dollar remediation process. I'm kind of curious in the long haul on this, what are we going to build where the gas stations are? Oh, good question. I know down by me, um, they raise a ra- they, they put in a Raisin Cane's uh, chicken fingers. Um, <laughs> so There you we know. go. So more uh, more oil, I guess, from uh, fried chicken. But um, yeah, it was an old Shell station. They just leveled it, and you know, about a year later, there's the raisin canes. So it works for me. Yeah, fried chicken all around. To just put a put a charging station right next to it, and there you I'll go. be a happy camper. <laughs> yeah, and getting there uh, will be a problem for everybody because nobody can drive very far in EVs. Is that right? Uh, no. No, okay. and even even one of the uh, the big names in the legacy car sales, uh, AutoNation CEO Mike Mike Jackson uh, said uh, he thinks range anxiety is overblown. Uh, I have to somewhat agree with him. It is it is correct. There there is range anxiety. You can't drive forever. But I've had range anxiety driving across the country in a regular car, too. And a gas car, yeah. Yeah, it had to turn around and go and get gas or you carry extra gas cans. Options you don't necessarily have with EVs. Although I know you've had to turn around before with your Model 3 and head back uh, to fill up. So so this does exist. But as we progress yeah. with with charging, to me, I, I've come to the realization it's not uh, range anxiety that He's saying that it's overblown and that uh, Americans basically have just figured out how far they need to drive and that you're going to have you're going to have a round town EV car and you're going to have at least right now you're going to have your your suburban. He gives us an example for your long distance. Uh, I think ultimately what this turns into is as infrastructure builds out is it's it's more of a charge anxiety. Am I going to be sitting in my car for 15 hours? Am I going to be able to find somewhere and to charge? And then once I found there the the, the hidden charger am I going to be sitting in my car for nine hours while it charges up yeah. as was the case in the past? There's a couple of ways of looking at this is I, I think part of it is kind of changing people's mindsets and kind of habits is, you know, after a hundred plus years of the internal combustion engine, we're conditioned to pull into a gas station, put the, the, the nozzle in the tank, you know, five minutes later, full tank off we go. I, I think ideally what, a lot of EV advocates would like to do is like co-locate chargers at retail locations, restaurants, you know, places where there's more quote dwell time where you're like chicken spend, places, you know, yeah. Raisin canes um, um, where you're going to spend, you know, one, two, three hours at a time doing other stuff where if your car is parked and plugged in, it's no big deal. 
it may take a while for people to kind of get used to that model. There's still a lot of pressure for, you know, fast charging. Again, there's not a uniform consensus on this about the need of fast charging versus what they call destination charging, which would be level two for the most part. I think he's right for the most part. I mean, I, I have seen some EVs stalled out on the freeway where I think the owners kind of um, overestimated their their range a little bit. But I think that's a mistake you typically only make once. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, for, for the for the time being, I, I think you have a lot of mixed car households where you'll have an internal combustion car and an EV. Our, my my household is like that. My wife has a Ford Escape. I have my Model 3. Even though we have taken my Model 3 on quite a few road trips, uh, there are some times when we just decided, look, getting there quickly is more important than making some environmental statement or whatever, and we'll keep the Tesla at home and we'll take hers. There's going to be a transition period where people kind of get used to it, kind of get used to kind of planning their trips out and charging and all that. But yeah, I, I kind of agree with that, with, with Mike Jackson. I, you know, people will figure this out. In the interim, there's going to be some awkwardness and some kind of confusion about how everything works. But, you know, I, I think ultimately it'll kind of sort itself out. Yeah, I don't think people should have to try to make these cars fit into or they sh- they sh- the car should fit into their lifestyle. They shouldn't have to fit into the car's lifestyle. And so I, I kind of see a, a, a flip on that. And I'm I'm all in on this 800 volt system that. Hyundai's doing with the eGMP and with Porsche and Audi, where you can get a zero to 80% charge in under 20 minutes, generally in these cars. You don't need that around town. You don't need that driving through LA. You can charge at home. But when you're on the road, they need a really good infrastructure that goes on all the major highways. And don't put a charger somewhere in between LA and Arizona that can only charge at six kilowatts. Put one that can charge at 250 kilowatts, and we'll go from there. Because you're not gonna you're not gonna stop in a in a know nothing town, basically a, a a blip on the on the map, and want to spend several hours there. No, I, I agree. I, I think I think more convenience is never a bad thing, and I think the industry is still pushing toward that. I don't know if, frankly, if if EVs will ever get to parity with uh, internal combustion engines in terms of time to refuel. I mean, I think we're close enough with the 800 volt systems. We're close enough. When you're talking 15 minutes, I've got, I've got a nice gas guzzling Yukon. And when that's empty and I want to give that, I want to fill that up. And so it's range will be about 350 to 400 miles. I will be filling that solidly for 10 minutes. Yeah. So it's getting to the point where it it's the difference is not, not that great. Yeah. Whether between 10 and 15 minutes, it's kind of like, eh, yeah. pull in, fast charge, go. When I charged at the charge point station uh, down the street from my house, that maxed out at, it was about seven kilowatts. It mm-hmm. was something like eight or nine hours to fill the car. Yeah. Well, and level that's, two. Yeah. Yes. But that's the station that's closest to my house. <clears throat> yeah. So if I wanted to charge at home, it would be about that which is fine for overnight charging. Yeah. But when I, I went the mile and a half down the street to charge the car there and an, an eight or nine hour recharge isn't acceptable when you're on the road. Yeah. 
That doesn't <laughs> yeah, work. Not, not exactly uh, ideal. Yeah. So it'll fix. It'll be time. I have no doubt I'm right. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, eventually, we'll get to the point where, where people don't really care if it's 15 minutes instead of five or 10. Yeah, I think that's comparable. I think yeah. we can do better, but I don't think we have to. I think yeah. we should all decide on that uh, standard and call that a day. And you know what else we can call a day? This episode? This episode. We are at the end of everything I want to talk about, unless you want to throw something else in there that maybe we skipped, but I, I think I'm I'm ready to take a nap. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I think I'm good. I'm glad. I hope uh, those of you that are listening, all, all five of you, uh, are enjoying it. Maybe I'll get our software platforms now. Yeah, I'll I'll maybe get our software figured out for tracking our podcast and I'll see if we actually do have any listeners. But for right now, you can go on Facebook and Twitter at the Walk Car and you can follow us there and you can subscribe to the Walk Car podcast on your favorite podcast player which is also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Pocket Cast now. Hey, that's a new one. Yeah, we're on almost everything. Uh, every time I turn around and I find something else to register as on, I just do it because whatevs. And show notes for the show can be found on whatcar.com slash podcast and just click on episode four. And if you got any questions, comments, anything you want to tell us we got wrong, email us at hello at the whatcar.com and maybe we'll reply <laughs> if we get the email yeah. you never can be too sure when you set this stuff up yourself and until next time we'll uh, see you on episode five i'll see you there <laughs>